Okay, we continue our study through 1 Peter this morning. Did everybody get a note sheet as you came in? Does anybody not have a note sheet? Okay, Jeremy will hand you one if you don't. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, we're in 1 Peter 3. You have that on your outline. I broke that up. Verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and then verse 7. So let's begin by reading this text. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Can I have somebody read that for us? Thanks, Will. So just by way of review, if you were with us last week, Desmond walked us through verses 18 through 25. And what he looked at specifically in that that passage was the relationship between servants and masters, specifically focusing in on how believing servants are to respond to unbelieving masters. And Desmond followed the text that we saw John Piper looking at the week before in verses 13 through 18. And that passage focused on how believers are to live in subjection to the governing authorities, and specifically how believers are to live in the midst of unbelieving governing authorities. And so this this theme of subjection continues this morning by looking at how wives are to act towards their husbands, and we're going to see here specifically focusing in on how they're to act toward unbelieving husbands. And then how husbands are to act toward their wives, and we'll see there the act of subjection as well. So looking again here at verse 1 in chapter 3, we start off with this word, likewise. And that word helps us to see the connection of what has previously been stated in chapter 2. And really this continuation of thought that Peter has here as he's describing these various relationships really goes back to verses 11 and 12 here in chapter 2. So let me read those for us, and I want to help you to see how the context is set up here. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which says, Beloved, I urge you, so this is a call to all the believers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the instruction here, specifically that we see in verse 12, is to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That term Gentiles is being used to refer to unbelievers. That word honorable means beautiful, beautiful, commendable, admirable. 
that is what our conduct should be in the midst of an unbelieving world. Because how we live, how we conduct ourselves, adorns or verifies what we say. And then Peter lays out what honorable conduct looks like in the relationship between citizens and their government, between servants and masters, and now between wives and husbands, and then husbands and wives. And, and as we think about the dynamic of these three relationships, what we should notice here is this relationship between a stronger party in the relationship and a weaker party in the relationship. We have those who could use their power abusively and those who were susceptible to mistreatment, those who were vulnerable to the acts of the wicked. The government here could easily become tyrannical. And it did in many cases and caused fear in the citizens, which may lead to a revolt by the citizens. Right? We see that even still today. You had masters who could rule their servants tyrannically and the desire for the servants to try to get some type of revenge on those who were mistreating them. And in this situation, you had a believing wife who was vulnerable to the mistreatment by an unbelieving husband for her conversion to Christ and the shame and the reproach that that would bring upon the husband within the community. So the temptation that we see in all three cases could be to react in a way that's according to the flesh, to seek some type of revenge for the mistreatment they may suffer, rather than to respond according to the spirit and to repay evil with good, and thus bring shame upon their enemies, even those of their own household, as is the case here with believing wives married to unbelieving husbands. So wives are to subject themselves to their own husbands, and again, the focus is on particularly those with unbelieving husbands. Uh, they are to be in subject so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. So the purpose, this is, this is key here, the purpose or the goal of subjection is salvation. In this case with believing wives, with unbelieving husbands. Wives are to be subject so that their husbands might be converted. Okay? Now, let's make sure we clarify what this verse is not saying, right? Because some have looked at this erroneously. It's not saying that husbands don't need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Well, how do we know that? Both the context here and the context of the Bible as a whole. The context here assumes that their husbands have heard the word and are not obeying the word, okay? So that's, it says here, so that even if some do not obey the word, okay? So they're disobeying the word. The assumption here is that they've heard it in order to disobey it. And this word that Peter is referring to here, look back with me at chapter 1, verse 25, where he says, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you, okay? So this word that we see here in chapter 3 is the good news, is the gospel. So the assumption is that the husbands have heard the gospel and are not obeying it. Um, also, when we look here in chapter 2, at verse 9, 
as Peter's describing who the people of God are. Notice what he says, but you are a chosen race, and that you there is all believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then notice to what end? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so he tells the believers that they were chosen by God to that end to proclaim the excellencies of him. So again, proclamation is assumed here, that, that the people of God are going to be speaking the word of God. Elsewhere in scripture, we see the absolute need for people to hear the gospel in order to be one, in order to be converted. Um, an example of this is Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17, if somebody could read that for us. So faith comes through hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, right? Hearing the gospel is essential to being one, to being converted or reading it, coming in contact with the gospel in some form, either verbally proclaimed or written. So what Peter seems to be emphasizing here in this verse is that the believing wives are not to badger or nag their husbands about the gospel, Rather, they're to trust the sufficiency of the word that the husband has already heard, and their focus should be on adorning the gospel with their good works, which is what Peter refers to here in verse 2. And then also, as he says later on in this letter, in 1 Peter 3.15, they're to be ready to testify to the hope that is in them if their husbands inquire further about the gospel. Okay? Now, th this concept of adorning the gospel with our conduct, our works or deeds before the unsaved is very prominent in, in this letter. I want to highlight a few passages that I think kind of brings this out. Look at, starting at verse 14 in chapter 1. If somebody could read verses 14 through 17. Okay, so there's, a, there's that aspect of behavior, conduct. Here's how we're to live in this world. Okay, look at chapter 2. We've already read part of this, verses 12 through 15. I'll go ahead and read that. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then notice the purpose of that again. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the governor as supreme or to governors sent by him, 
um, to the emperor, as supreme, sorry, or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So again, the focus there is not on only what they say, but how they're living before an unsaved world. And then looking at verse 20 there in chapter 2, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, I'm sorry, uh, but if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So again, there's that focus on our acts, what we're doing, our behavior. And then in chapter 3, if you flip over there with me, chapter 3, and I'll just pick it up in verse 15 and read through verse 17. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and then notice this, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So good behavior is assumed. They're going to be reviling, for you. They're going to be reviling you for something, right? It's because of how you're acting as a believer, how you're conducting your life. Now, as we think about this, we want to avoid two errors here. One is to think that our works alone are sufficient for people to understand the gospel. Right? We've got to guard against that error. You can't just think that if I just act this way, they'll come to know Christ. That should be an adornment of the gospel. And how we live, and Peter kind of assumes that in chapter 3 when he says, when they ask you for a reason of the hope that is in you, right? you're, you're living totally contrary. And you have this foundation underneath you that's driving your life. What is that? And you can testify of it. Okay? So we don't want to think that our works alone are sufficient for people to understand the gospel, right? Words are necessary. The gospel must be proclaimed. But the other error that we want to avoid is to think that our works don't play any role or part in a person's conversion and how God uses that to bring people to himself. Our works are a powerful testimony to the gospel that we have heard, believed, and are proclaiming and our works are evidence that we have truly believed the gospel. Okay? They display that. They manifest the reality of the proclamation of our, our lips. Certainly not perfectly, but there should be an evidence of righteousness in a person's life. James makes this argument in a very popular passage here. If somebody can read that for us. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, thank you. So Peter says here, that the wife's respectful, pure conduct, the way that she acts, can be a powerful means in aiding the unbelieving husband's conversion. Okay, that's kind of what we see unpacked here in verses one and two. All right, any any thoughts 
before we move on to verses 3 and 4? Jeremy? I have one on, yeah. on this. So I just want to be clear. <clears throat> verses 3 and 4, within the context of what Peter's talking about, mm-hmm. we, we should not walk away from this passage saying, taking, it doesn't seem like we should take away that something about women's physical appearance and this is some rule about what they should and should not wear. That's correct. I'm going to get into that as well in the next, but yes, no, that's not what it's saying. And I think there's a specific phrase in there that helps us to see that it's, that's not what it's talking about. Yes, Diane Lynn. Somebody shared with me a while ago that helped me, and they said, if you just live the life that God wants you to live, yes, that's good. That's good. That's good. I like that. I like that. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? All right, let's move on to verses 3 and 4. Yeah, no, that's okay. Okay, so Peter continues this thought now on where the wife's focus should be toward her husband. Okay, and verses 3 and 4, I'll read that again. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart <clears throat> with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So you can see Peter starts here by kind of speaking negatively first, right? He's telling you what you shouldn't do or what they should not focus on. Now, certainly, much like today, culture would have been applying pressure on where the focus of these wives should be, and that is on the external, right, on the outward appearance. But it wasn't just that a wife might face the temptation to focus on their external appearance to make sure that they keep their husband's gaze and affection. I think that's one level, but I think there's another level to this as well. When a woman who was married to, or when a woman who was married became a Christian in this society, in this pagan society in which these believers were living, we have to understand the potential shame that that could bring to the husband. We still see this in other parts of the world today, especially in the Muslim world. That's a big deal of a spouse converting to Christianity and the shame that that brings upon the marriage and the whole family. And then people are cast out because of their belief for Christ. The husband could be seen in this society as one who has no control over his household. One who has a wife who's disrespected him by forsaking the worship of Roman gods and in particular the emperor and now believing that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord rather than Caesar. If the husband disowns his wife and leaves her, she's put in a very vulnerable position. Right? To have to provide for and take care of herself. Right? This wasn't a system governmentally that was set up to say, that's okay, well, the government will come alongside you and help you in this transition. Right? You're put out on your own to deal with that which could be a very difficult thing. You can imagine the anxiety that that could bring upon a wife to think, I've got to now provide for myself. My husband's disowned me. He's cast me out. So the temptation would have been very real to try to do whatever she could to make sure that her husband didn't leave her. 
But it's interesting here how God, he calls these wives to not focus on that, but to trust him and to focus on the inner person, not the outer person. You've got to trust God, wife, that how God is going to change the heart of your husband isn't by your external appearance. It's by what's going on in your heart and how you're living for Christ. Now, this doesn't mean, as Jeremy was stating, that wives were not to do anything with their hair or not to wear any jewelry. And I think that becomes plain when it says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Right? So if you follow that, no braided hair, no jewelry, no clothes. That doesn't work. Okay? That's not, some have taken that, and I know we kind of chuckle about it, but some have taken that to extremes and said, you can't do anything to yourself physically. If you do, you're a pagan, and you're focusing on, you know, external things. That's, that's not what Peter's getting at. What his mindset is, is that isn't where your focus ought to be, okay? The Gentiles are living that way. That's how they seek to gain and hold the affection of men, but you're not to do that, wives. Okay? Here's what you're to, to focus on. In other words, what he's stating here is that the wife's mind sh- mindset should not be this. In order to win and keep my husband, I need to do my hair just like this. I need the most expensive jewelry. I need the latest design of beautiful clothing so that his affection doesn't go elsewhere. The temptation's already going to be great enough knowing that I've renounced his gods and I'm now following Jesus as, as Lord. So the temptation, I think we got to feel the weight of that. That would have been very real for a woman and the position of vulnerability that she would have been in. But God says what she is to focus on was the hidden person of the heart. And notice what Peter says about this hidden person of the heart or the inner man, as Scripture says elsewhere. Its beauty is imperishable. He's contrasting that with the outer man, that which is external, that which you can see, that which is perishable. So his argument is this, wives, don't focus on what is perishing. Your hair is going to eventually turn gray, your clothing will eventually fade, your gold jewelry will eventually rust. These things will only at best temporarily capture the attention of your husband. But focus on the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. We see something very similar to this in Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I think it's, that's the heart of what Peter's getting at here. And then notice, this is so massive, what Peter says in this next, for, for, the, for the wife who's got an unbelieving husband and is trying to work through that. And I think it's applicable as well, principally, to wives with believing husbands also. But this is what he says at the end of verse 4. Which in God's sight is very precious. Now when we go back up to verse 2, how believing wives can win their husbands to the Lord is by letting them see their respectful and pure conduct. But listen, there is the possibility that the unbelieving husband remains an unbeliever. And because his eyes are blind to true beauty, he may not see your conduct and want to follow your God and remain with you. 
But this is the glorious reality that even if this unbelieving husband does not see the conduct of the Christian wife and say, that is beautiful and precious, God sees it as such. He looks at it and he says, that is very precious in my sight. Yes, the Christian wife desires and prays that the unbelieving husband will see and be captivated by a life transformed by the power of the gospel and be converted to himself. But above that, she is to recognize there is another set of eyes that are on her. The eyes of the only one that truly matters, God himself. And that's where she can find her joy in the midst of a very difficult situation. Okay. All right. Any any comments or questions on verses three and four? Good. Okay. All right. Well, let's look. Let's move on then to verses five and six. Peter now gives the uh, the foundation for why wives should focus on this. And you can notice that word for that he uses there at the beginning of verse 5 is the ground under which these statements have come. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 again. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he grounds the instruction that he is given in an example from redemptive history. Right? He looks back at the Old Testament, kind of walks through here. And notice first that Peter refers to women who have submitted themselves to their husbands as holy women. Right? These are women who have been set apart by God just like these believing wives that Peter is addressing have been set apart by God. They're precious in his sight. They're his own. And there's something glorious here that has caused them to respond in submission to their husbands. Notice this. What is it that caused them to do that? Their hope in God. You see that? This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, right? Their hope in God was the root out of which their lives of submission to their husbands flowed. Their confidence was in the realization that God has made them his own. And the glorious reminder here in, in Peter that he's coming back someday to bring them to himself. That is what fuels their obedience to their husbands. And, and that's massive. That, that really changes, right, just a simple command. It's rooted in the reality of who I am in Christ, what God has done for me in him, and this glorious hope that he's coming back to get me. Right? So these wives, these holy women, their hope was in God, and that is the root out of which their fruit of submissive obedience to their husband springs forth. They recognized that submission to their husbands was ultimately submission to the God who loves them and calls them his own. That's where the issue was. 
And then, so, so Peter speaks generally here, right? He talks about that this is how the holy women of old used to adorn themselves. But, but he picks out one in particular here, right? Sarah. He picks out Sarah and he picks out her obedience to Abraham by calling him Lord. Now, what's interesting here is the only place in scripture where we see Sarah calling Abraham Lord is in Genesis 18, verses 9, and, 9 through 12. And if I can have somebody read that for us. Let me, let me just set the context here. Maybe, maybe you remember. The three men show up to see Abraham, and Abraham recognizes God's in my presence, <laughs> right? Okay, so it's like, quick, let's make something for these guys, right? Here, go ahead. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next week, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent full of God. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased. Okay. This is a massive example that Peter just seems to pluck out of the Old Testament and use here to illustrate this glorious reality of a wife's submission to her husband rooted in the hope that she has in God. Notice this. Sarah doesn't call Abraham Lord to his face in this example that Peter uses here. It's not as if she's just putting on this show for Abraham and respecting him only when Abraham is in her presence. And so the statement that Peter uses here is this beautiful glimpse into a wife's heart that understands her role in the relationship that God has orchestrated between her and her husband. She honors her husband in the place that truly matters in the sight of the God that she hopes in, and that is in her heart. She laughs to herself and says this, boom, right? So she's not going up to Abraham. He doesn't pull out an example and say, here, here, look how Sarah obeyed Abraham in this way, right? Now, obviously, the way that she feels in her heart is certainly going to manifest itself in how she behaves toward her husband. And that is the example that wives are called to follow, which leads into the last thing that Peter says to these wives here, that, that this, this honor is to be toward their husband first and foremost within their hearts. And then he says to them this, that you are her children, that is Sarah's children. You're her daughters. Which is to say, just like the sons of Abraham, a statement that we see throughout the scripture, you are heirs of the covenant. Right? That's what he's driving at here. Sons of Abraham, daughters of Sarah, heirs of the covenant, right? And how you will prove that you're truly her daughters is through your conduct, the good that you do, specifically toward your husband. And notice here, not fearing anything, not fearing his disapproval, his potential mocking of your faith, the fact that he may abandon you for following Christ, or whatever else it is that may cause you to fear, the daughters of Sarah are to be toward their husbands respectful, pure, gentle, quiet in spirit, and bold. And that is a, pow a potential powerful means to be used by God in the conversion of their husbands. Okay, 
Any comments or questions on that section before we move into husbands? Dinah Lynn. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yep. oh man, I, you, I would have been right. You know, and, and it's really interesting that you bring up that point. I, I was listening to something by John Piper where he's talking about notice how Peter didn't use this example <laughs> because he, he doesn't want wives to follow their husbands into sin, right? In, into doing something like that. And he plucks out this little verse here, but that's where my mind went. I think all of us, when we think about that, our minds tend to go there first and foremost. I thought Piper brought out a really good example there of, you know, times where I think he had like a whole session on times you should not subject yourself to your husband, right? And that is when he's leading you into sin, right? That's when you, you do that. But yeah, that's, that's where my mind went first. And I was like, oh yeah, it's probably in that passage. I'm looking it up. I'm like, no, it's not there. It's here, here it is. And then, man, it just struck me. I was like, wow, this isn't even to his face, man. This is just in her heart before the Lord and how precious how precious that is. God did deliver. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. She probably was trusting God. Amen. No doubt. And not her husband. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Good. Okay. Any other thoughts there? Okay. Let's look now at verse 7 with the time that we have remaining. Verse 7 says this, Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, what catches our attention, or what should catch our attention, right at the beginning here, is this word likewise. Okay, so that, that connects it back. Now, you don't have the same terminology that's used here, right? Husbands, be subject to your wives, right? so on and so forth, but I believe it's implied, this subjection, because again, when you carry the argument that Peter's been bringing out here, this really carries us all the way back to verse 13, where he says uh, in chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and then again, he goes through the first institution, which is citizens and their government, the second institution, servants and masters, and then the third institution, marriage, okay? how wives are to behave toward their husbands and how husbands are to behave toward their wives. Okay, so I think the implication, and I think it's very clear in Ephesians 5, a passage that we'll look at as well, where it deals with this aspect of the husband's subjection to God in the way that he deals with his wife. So everybody's in an act of subjection here, okay, in this. The husband is to be subject for the Lord's sake to his wife, and he subjects or he submits himself to the Lord by treating his wife in a way that the Lord both commands and commends. So again, both husband and wife are in subjection in a marriage. It looks different, but their subjection is rooted in their subjection to the Lord. Okay, that's where all subjection is ultimately rooted because God gives the commands on how we should, how we should do this. So let's see how husbands are to live with their wives. Peter states here in verse 7 that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. That, that word understanding means according to knowledge. Okay? According to knowledge. So husbands, you need to know your wife well. 
so that you can live with her properly. And two important things you need to know are flushed out in the rest of this verse. First, you need to know that she is a weaker vessel who deserves your honor. To honor her means to esteem or value her, to respect her, to admire her. All of that is wrapped up in the word honor. And again, thinking about the context in which this was written, there was a tendency then, and I say there is now, as our nature hasn't changed, even though culturally it might look a little different, the tendency is for husbands to belittle their wives and to treat them in an inferior way. There is a degrading of wives that husbands are susceptible to. And Peter says here that how you live with your wife, according to knowledge, in an understanding, in a way that shows your submissiveness to the Lord, is to honor her as the weaker vessel. Now that phrase, weaker vessel, refers to the susceptibility that wives were prone to. A husband, in most cases, generally speaking, could easily dominate his wife physically. And because she was physically weaker and made her susceptible to harsh treatment from her husband, both physically and verbally. So husbands were and are, due to their sinful natures, prone to a domineering disposition toward their wives. And so how a husband was to dwell with his wife was to remember that God designed her as the weaker vessel, not as someone to, be, to take advantage of, but as someone to be deeply cared for and in a way that would be honoring to both her and more importantly, to God, to handle her as a fragile vessel with great care and concern for her, not to use his strength to domineer her or to use it in a dominating way, which again is, is a temptation. Now, that honor toward the weaker vessel would be seen in a multitude of ways, but I think there's a few specific ways that the scripture kind of flushes this out. It's flushed out in a husband's protection of his wife, physically certainly, but in every way that we can think of protection, spiritually, above all, his provision for her, providing for his wife, and his godly leadership over her. And Ephesians 5, 23 through 29, I think really helps to kind of fill in the picture that Peter is painting here. Uh, so I want to look at Ephesians 5, verses 23 through 29. I'll go ahead and read that. For the husband is the head of the wife. So there's that aspect of leadership, right? Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There, there's the provision. There's a providing for that Christ does for his church that husbands are to model. Certainly not in a salvific way. We can't do that. But he fleshes out kind of what that looks like and how we can provide for our wives. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's, again, that aspect of protection that we see that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's that aspect of providing for the wife. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, and then here's another aspect of this, notice, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So I think, I think Ephesians 5 is really helpful to kind of fill in the, uh, the picture there that Peter is, is bringing out in this aspect of a husband's role and his responsibility toward his wife and how they were to, uh, to think about that. And then Peter goes on here to say, you'll notice that husbands are to honor their wives also because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Again, this mindset was given to help husbands understand that while there is certainly role distinction in this God-honoring relationship called marriage, there is no distinction in who they are in the sight of God, right? And that, that's a prominent theme that you see hit on throughout the New Testament when it talks about believers being in Christ, Jew and Gentile, male and female, right? So there, there's this, this breaking down. That woman that you have covenanted with in marriage is a co-heir of the universe with you. All that belongs to your father and all that he's given to his children, he's given to each one equally. They're inheritors along with us of what the father has given to us in Christ. We're on equal footing as the children of God. God doesn't show any favoritism to his children, but all alike, including both husbands and wives are precious in his sight. So they deserve to be honored that way. As a believing husband, your wife, as a believer, is a daughter of the living God. Treat her as such. Honor her as such. There is no inferiority in that relationship. And then notice what he says here. If you don't honor your wife as the weaker vessel and joyfully fulfill your duties to her as a husband and you don't honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, then the result will be hindered prayers. Husbands, let me ask, have you ever thought that perhaps a reason that your prayers are not answered is because of the way that you treat your wife? That's a serious statement, right? That, that's how serious God takes your disposition toward your wife and how you think about her. That's convicting. I was convicting going through this. I had some repenting to do and just thinking through. <laughs> and I was like, man, I need help, Lord. Okay, so husbands are given this serious, glorious charge. Here's how you're to think about your wives. Here's how you're to dwell with them. And listen, it's going to be foreign to the way this world thinks and acts about their relationships in, in marriage, right? When you're talking about your wife in a positive way, that's, that's an unusual thing like at work, right? Normally you hear the nagging, the complaining, and so on and so forth. But this is the way that men of God are called to honor the daughters of God. And so we, we, need to take, we need to take heed to that. So Peter, Peter kind of closes this up, and next week um, 
Will, are you on next week? Yeah, you are. That's right. Um, Will will jump into verses 8 through 12 to kind of kind of think about this aspect of, okay, so how, how are we all to think about this? After Peter has spent time looking at these various relationships, how are we to all think about, you know, who we are, who we are in Christ? Okay. All right. Any, any comments or, or questions on that? Diana Lynn? Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's good. I'm used to doing fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That part of that is going back to the garden mm-hmm. where the woman wants to see. Yeah. And so the weaker vessel is, whether it's emotionally or our dance, is that possible? Yeah, certainly. I mean, when, when, we, when we go back to creation, absolutely, we see the woman being created out of man to be the helpmate for him in that, in that relationship. And then you do see a susceptibility to the point that you were making there. It's highlighted in 1 Timothy 2 when it, when it talks about, you know, a woman's, uh, a wife's role and why she's not to be, or a woman's role in not being able to teach. And that's the example that's used as it goes back to the garden um, in that. So I think that's also part of the protective nature that a godly husband has in that, in that relationship with his wife is to guard her spiritually, washing her with the water and making sure she's understanding the scriptures, which is a, is a massively weighty responsibility. I think as husbands we would you know, declare that. That's, that's serious how, how God takes that and our leadership that we're to have toward our wives. So yeah, I think that weaker vessel encompasses every aspect of, of how a woman has been designed by God and the husband's role in caring for her. So in in verses 1 through 7, again, what we see here is husbands and wives need to examine themselves to see if we're properly subjecting ourselves to the Lord by fulfilling the responsibilities that he has given each in this glorious institution of marriage. Okay? All right, well, we'll stop there for today as we're uh, finishing right on time. I'm glad for that. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this time where we've been able to look at your word and to think through this uh, together. Uh, Father, I pray specifically for marriages in our church, Father, that you would help both husbands and wives to fulfill the responsibilities and the roles that we have been given, Lord, in a way that would magnify the greatness of of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the relationship we know that all marriages are ultimately pointing to, good marriages and bad marriages. They're saying something about that relationship between Christ and his church. And we want Christ to be glorified um, in, in how we interact in our marriages, Father. So please help us to that end. And I pray also for... Uh, specifically spouses with unbelieving spouses, Lord, that you would, uh, believing spouses with unbelieving spouses, that you would give much grace uh, to help them to see how they are to live in a way that is honoring to you, Lord, which can be very difficult in a, in a relationship like that. So uh, thank you for the sufficiency of your word, the reality of it, that it deals with real uh, issues that we're all involved with, Um, and in particular in this this relationship of marriage. So uh, help us to that end for your glory, Father. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.